Job 2, beginning in verse 1. And our Lord is speaking to us in this word, this testimony of this man named Job, and the trials, the difficulties, the perseverance that he uh, practiced through these times. Again, Job was an exceptional, extraordinary figure. If you back up to the first verse of the first chapter, uh, which these, these, the statement about Job is repeated here three times in the first two chapters, and we remind ourselves Job was a blameless man. He was upright. He was fearing God and turning away from evil. He was without fault. He was a, a complete man, just a mature man in faith and faith of God. He was one who had good or upright, righteous dealings with other people and his business arrangements and his, his living situation. He was just a fair, a just man. He was one who was a God-fearing one. He had God on his heart, in his thoughts, in his lips, in his actions. He, he was concerned about God's reputation and God's justice even. And he, because of that, would turn away from evil. He says, I don't want any part of that in my life. And even for his own children, verse 5, of course, said that he would offer sacrifices for his children, that uh, perhaps they had somehow cursed God in their hearts. And so Job was very, very conscientious of those things. And so when we read further in chapter 1, we realize that this contest or this challenge that, that God presented to Satan, that Satan then turned back on God, that somehow uh, Job was only, the only reason Job was worshiping God and doing all these religious pious things is because God gave him money for it. God, you know, he just, God proffered, proffered, prospered, there it is, profited, prospered a Job in such a way that obviously, I mean, Job's going to worship you, you're the best deal in town, right? You know, he turns away from you, he's going to lose all his wealth. And God says, okay, you take all his wealth away and let's see what happens. And of course, that's what happened in, at the end of, of chapter one, which we looked at last time, a, a devastating. If, if Job is so exceptional in his character and everything about him, he's the greatest of the sons of the East, so also was his downfall, his great difficulties that he faced, the exhaustion of all of his resources, all the livestock, all of his children taken away in one, with four parts, one fell swoop, right? Somebody said, if you read verses 13 to 20, or so, uh, 19, it takes about 39 seconds to read this devastating account of the loss of all things. Can you imagine receiving that kind of news? I mean, okay, you might get this news of, of a cancer or a death of a loved one or whatever, but can you imagine that compound with another compound with another with another with, and just poured upon you in one just moment? And then, of course, we saw Job's response in verse 20. He rose up from having been sitting, sitting down and in, uh, in receiving these reports, and he tore his robe and shaved his head and fell to the ground, not in a spasmodic, you know, losing control of all this thing. No, he fell to the ground deliberately and worshipped. And he said, naked I came, naked shall I return there. Yahweh gave and Yahweh has taken away. Blessed be the name of Yahweh. So this response that Job had proved Satan wrong, that the only reason that Job worships and serves Yahweh is because God gave him all this stuff. Well, all this stuff was taken away. The hedge that Satan accused God of putting around um, Job, which granddaddy, great-granddaddy, always prayed for his kids to have a hedge, you know, put a hedge about him, Lord. And God has done that, did that for Job, removed that. God removed it from his livestock, his servants, his, uh, his children, and Satan struck out and touched them and destroyed them. 
Verse 22 says, Through all this Job did not sin, nor did he give offense to God. He did not say false things about God. He did not charge God with error or uh, sinning against him. Again, Satan's accusation is false. It is unfounded. It, it's, it's not even so much about Job's motivation, that Job was worshiping God out of envy or greed. You know, God gives good gifts to his kids, so hey, it's the best deal in town again. No, Satan was accusing God. The only reason people follow is because you give them stuff. And so if you don't give them stuff, you won't have any people following you. You'll be all by yourself. And so the accusation is, is against Job, definitely. He is touched, right? But Satan hates God, absolutely despises him, wants his position, wants to be king, wants to be the lord of all things, and, and has the deluding uh, concern that he will be. Uh, even Revelation 20, after the thousand years in the, in the abyss, he says, oh, we've got God right where we want him. We're going to come out and... No, he is wickedly perverse, crooked, bent. He cannot be restored. He is always seeking after his own devices, totally against Yahweh, totally against God. So we get to chapter 2 and verse 1, and a repeat of the contest, but in a different and more uh, in-your-face kind of a, a test here. Let me read the text, and then we'll look at it more carefully. Verse 1 of chapter 2 of Job says, Again, it was the day that the sons of God came to stand before Yahweh, and Satan also came among them to stand himself before Yahweh. And Yahweh said to Satan, Where do you come from? Then Satan answered Yahweh and said, from roaming about on the earth, walking around on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, Have you set your heart upon my servant Job? For there is no one like him on the earth, blameless, and a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity. So you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. Satan answered Yahweh and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all a man has he'll give for his life. However, send forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you in your face. So Yahweh said to Satan, Behold, he's in your hand. Only spare his life. Then Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and struck Job with terrible boils from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. And he, Job, took a potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the wickedly foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept calamity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. As we saw back in chapter 1, this this uh, situation where the sons of God came to present themselves before God. These are the sons, these are the angels, the, the heavenly beings that would be around God's court in heaven and be sent out on various missions and then come back and give their reports. It seems like this is the time where Satan himself is summoned before God to give a report to himself, or to God rather. And it, it, there's that duplication of that phrase, to stand before Yahweh, to stand before God. This is, this is not just a... a a haphazard meeting. This is Satan coming back to report on his duties. Okay, you did this against my servant Job, so tell me about it. How did it go? And, and how did you prove yourself right or wrong? God would indicate. It is helpful to see that, that God, again, is in the midst of his holy ones. He is in the midst of his uh, 
servants, his fiery servants that go and accomplish his deed, accomplishing his will on this earth and even various other places. I imagine God has concerns all over the universe, uh, not with people so much. People are here. Humans are here. Life is here on earth. And yet we see these spirits going out and doing their different works. Satan also is one who is sent out for a particular task to ultimately bring God glory, even though he hates the thought of it, hates the idea of God, Yahweh getting glory, but he is a tool. Again, as Luther, Martin Luther would say, the devil is God's devil. Uh, the devil only accomplishes what God has purposed in his, in his sound counsel. Ephesians 1 talks about the counsel of his will. And so Satan is just part of that whole process. And you think, how? Wait a minute. Satan does nasty things, killing, destroying, stealing, lying. How can God be active in that? Okay, we looked at that a little bit in chapter 1, but we'll see it more carefully a little bit later in this chapter. Satan is there to present himself before Yahweh and gives this report. Of course, the, the give and take, the conversation starts with God asking a question, where, where do you come from, which is um, an innocuous, just beginning the conversation. It says, what's your business? Where, where, you know, what, what's your report kind of thing? And so Satan answers the same kind of answer that he gave uh, at the beginning or the first, first uh, heavenly court scene that we saw in chapter one. He says, I'm roaming around the earth and, and uh, walking around on it. What is he doing? What's he looking for? People to devour, people to destroy, people to deceive and, and get off the path of righteousness. And so uh, he had set his heart. In fact, God says here in verse three, Yahweh said to Satan, have you set your heart upon my servant Job? Not again to say, oh, Satan, you forgot about Job. Let me, let me remind you about this man, Job. No, Satan is just frustrated about this whole thing. And he says, okay, we did this first test, this whole thing, removing the hedge and, and just destroying all of Job's livestock and, and his, his servants and his children. But he's just boiling over with rage and anger. And he says, we didn't do enough. We didn't do enough to, to really get the test uh, to where it needed to be for, uh, to prove that Job is wrong and God is wrong and everybody's wrong, but Satan is right. Can you imagine the, the flipped world that that would be if Satan is, is right and God is wrong? No. God brings to mind, and Yahweh specifically, the, the holy uh, personal name of God, not just his title God or Lord, but his name Yahweh, he says, have you set my your heart upon my servant Job. One thing I mentioned last time in relation to this phrase, my servant, is a wonderful endorsement, a, a personal relationship that Job and Yahweh have, even in some measure of ignorance and some measure of it's pretty early on in earth history or human history that, that Job is responding to God, responding to Yahweh by name. Again, I think these, these events, Job was probably a... a uh, contemporary. So he lived at the same time of like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So like 2000 BC, uh, very early in the revelation of, of God himself to people and yet knew enough about God that he is holy. He's righteous. He can't abide by sin. He is just, uh, he, you know, all these things that, that are anchors or bedrocks for Job's theology. He knows and affirms about God. This phrase my servant is a title of honor. I mean, it's coming from God, Yahweh. And he says, he is my servant. He is doing my will, doing my purposes. It is spoken of here about Job back in verse 8 of chapter 1, spoken of here and verse 3, of course. And then at the end of the book, chapter 42, a couple different times, two different times, God refers to Job as my servant. And so there is a divine endorsement. Again, we, we saw verse 1. What is Job like? Oh, he's blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. God repeats that twice in that first heavenly court scene and again here. 
there's no one like him on the earth, blameless and all the other things there. Do you know other people that are mentioned as my servant, Abraham? Abraham is talked about as my servant, Isaac also, my servant Isaac. And Israel or Jacob is also referred to as uh, the servant of God. Both the individual and the people, the children of Israel, the sons of Israel are called my servant. Another one a little bit later, perhaps, is Moses. Moses is referred to as my servant a lot of times. Moses is one of those guys who accomplished God's uh, will and God's purpose. But probably, apart from the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is talked about as the servant of Yahweh and my servant and so forth, is David. David is the servant of God. He talks so many, so many times about your servant. And even David says it about himself, I am your servant. Now, he's the king. The king of Israel. He's, he's mighty and all these things, but he is, refers to himself and regards himself as a servant, one who is serving the king of kings, the lord of lords. And so David often refers to himself as your servant. Various prophets like Elijah, Jonah, Isaiah are referred to as servants, servants of Yahweh. Uh, other kings like Hezekiah and Nebuchadnezzar is called a servant of God. And so there's this relationship. I, I think I think that we will see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, not because of, of that phrase, but because he came to a realization, God is in the heavens, there's only one God, and we need to worship and bow down before him. He is able, I think it's the last verse of Daniel 4, he is able to humble those who walk in the pride of their hearts. He brings them low, not for the purpose of condemnation, but for the purpose of realization. Who are you to answer back to God? And that's really the, the, one of the points of Job. Who are you, Job, to question the Almighty, El Shaddai? How, how dare you bring an accusation against me? Who is this who darkens counsel with words without knowledge? I mean, this kind of statement that we'll see a little bit later. Messiah himself, Jesus, is referred to as the servant of Yahweh who accomplishes his will. And again, that personal relationship of Yahweh with his person, but also the, the devotion, the attention, the the concern that these individuals have for the glory of God, for the will of God being accomplished on earth. And so God rightly says, this is my servant, Job. I know him by name. I call him by name. I know all about him. He turns away from evil. And verse three says, he still holds fast his integrity. This is an endorsement. He didn't mention this back in chapter one, but it's mentioned two different times. And it's going to be mentioned a few other times in in this book about Job's integrity. This idea of integrity has to do with perfection. It's related to that word blameless that we've seen three times already in this text about Daniel, or excuse me, about uh, Job, Daniel, and Noah are also referred to as righteous guys. Slip of the mind. Uh, But this idea of integrity has to do with perfection or completeness. Uh, One who is without fault, one who is uh, consistent. I mean, we get that idea of integrity, consistent in conduct. What you see on the outside is what is real on the inside and vice versa. And so there's no disconnect. There's no um, hypocrisy going on with Job. What you see is what you get kind of a thing. The outside matches the inside. He had tested or had been tested in regard to the external matters. Remember the hedge that, that... Satan accused God of putting around Job to protect him so that Job would worship him. Okay, that hedge is removed, but now we get a glimpse of this this man on the inside. And one person, one commentator I was reading, talked about uh, the difference between being armchair theologians, which scholarly, you know, head knowledge kind of stuff, we we understand, we we know the terms, versus wheelchair theologians, those who are in the wheelchair, not just pushing the wheelchair, but in a mode of suffering under that, that crucible or in that crucible, under that, that pressure of, or, or um, 
squeezing. There's another word. We're talking about squeezing, the persecution that we have. When we have a theology that is tested not just in, in the book learning, but in the real life when the, when the nitty meets the gritty, if you don't mind mixing some terms there. Wow, what kind of a theology do you have then? Job who held fast, or how does it say? Yes, hold fast his integrity. He is the same person, and he is speaking words of truth that he knew, that he knew about Yahweh, but now it's been put to the test. Just like Satan put, you know, set up that whole thing. God says that Job held fast or was holding on to. This idea of holding on to is, uh, can be a, a just a, you know, I hold on to this. You know, I'm, I'm carrying this, I'm holding, I might put it in my pocket or something. But there's, there's a more aggressive sense of holding on to. You remember when, this happened twice, when Solomon became king, when Solomon became king, he kind of set to write some things that his father David left unresolved, some, some justice that needed to be meted out. And one of those happened to do with his brother-in-law, brother, excuse me, brother, Adonijah. And Adonijah wanted to be king, right? Well, nothing doing. Solomon's king by the order and, and word of, of David. Well, and you can read about why that, how this happened, but eventually Adonijah was guilty to be sentenced to death. And what did he do? He went into the temple and he held fast the horns of the altar. What are you doing holding on to the horns of the altar? What, isn't that hot? What are you doing over there? A little bit later in that First Kings 2 or 1, whatever it is, maybe 3, Joab, the general of David's army, goes the same way because he was in cahoots with Adonijah to make him king instead of Solomon. And so he's guilty of death by Solomon's decree. And he goes and clings onto the horns of the altar. What is he doing? He's appealing for mercy. He's appealing right to God for mercy. Guess what? They didn't get any mercy. They're both killed because of their wickedness and, and going against the Lord's anointed, going against David, the uh, servant of Yahweh and so forth. So we see that, that taking hold of something can have a more aggressive um, clinging or being devoted to uh, sense. There are some other ways that we could look at this word as well. Those who take hold of my covenant, God endorses those kinds of people who are devoted to these things, who are concerned about the, the continuance of these things. Job here is holding fast his integrity. It's not something he's willing to trade off. He says, there's nothing. I've, I've not done anything. I'm blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from me. What, why is this happening? What is going on? Now, he's going to answer, ask these kind of questions as we go through his, his uh, speeches and so forth. And his friends, you know, quote unquote, will come and try to help him in that regard. But it's been established three times. There's not a reason in Job's life, why he went through all these sufferings and the, and the subsequent things that are going to be coming, it's because of God's good purposes. God is accomplishing, advancing his glory. He's accomplishing good things in the life of Job, in the life of his, of his wife, even the lives of his friends that come around and the brothers and sisters, even in the life of his kids. Do you remember, and they're dead, of course, you think, well, how, how's that good for them? Do you remember and this is getting off into the weeds a little bit, but do you remember when Jeroboam became king of the northern kingdom after Solomon died and, and Rehoboam led the southern kingdom and Jeroboam led the northern kingdom, but led them away from God, away from the worship of Yahweh and, and said, we're still worshiping God, but then he established two different worship places that no, that's not what, no. God said, you're going to be king, but you don't take worship away from me and, and do it in your own way. And so God brought judgment upon Jeroboam was going to bring judgment, but he, in the, before that happened, he killed Jeroboam's child. You think, well, what was that about? How is that good? And how is that merciful? God, what are you doing? Well, the narrative goes on to describe that child, 
He's the only good thing in the whole household of Jeroboam. I'm taking him out now before I put judgment upon him. Whoa, that kind of changes our perspective a little bit. So even in God's killing of the 10 children of Job, he's accomplishing good things. He is gracious and good. Job was interceding on their behalf. Are they in heaven? I don't know, but God does what is right. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases, and whatever he pleases is good and right. He makes no mistakes. So Job had that faith, that confidence, that integrity before God. I didn't do anything wrong. There's something else going on here. Who is gonna, who's going to find the, the, the result or the, the source of all this issue? How, are we gonna, how am I going to present my case and say, God, I'm blameless before you. How, what's going on? And we'll read, it's going to take us several chapters to get through all the different arguments and so forth. And then the, the last response that God has to Job. But going back to verse 3 here, Job is this man who is complete before God, has a heart that is complete toward him. And so God is faithful to to intercede on his behalf. We'll see how that goes on in the course of this text. But then God says, so, maybe your, your translation says although, but the idea is he, he went through all this test. He still holds fast in integrity, which you said he wouldn't. So look, the result of the whole thing is you incited me against him to swallow him up for nothing. Your whole thing was a power trip. Satan, you're trying to destroy. You're trying to kill. You're trying to advance your own agenda on earth. You incited me, you stirred me up, you provoked me in this regard to destroy him. The idea here is that Satan, you, now this is humanly speaking perhaps, Satan, you allured me, Yahweh says, you tempted me to do things that I wouldn't normally do. Who's in charge here? Who's the one calling the meeting? Who's the one calling the, you know, putting the limits on Satan? You can do this, but don't touch his body. Or here, we already read it, don't kill him. Only spare his life. Who's the one in charge? God is in charge. Wholly addressing the whole thing. Satan was, you know, he was roaming around the earth and God says, okay, you've set your heart on, on Job. Let's talk about him. And let's see how Job's extraordinary situation is going to advance my glory and demean you. Show just what a fake you are, Satan. And so... God says, you incited me against him to swallow him up in vain. Swallow him up is a lot of times referred to in scripture in a destructive condemnation kind of sense. You remember when those people in the Exodus time were contesting against Moses and Aaron and, and said, the whole, everybody's holy, we can all offer sacrifices. How dare you make such a big deal about your own selves? You remember the earth opened and swallowed them alive. Not just the, the gainsayers, but all their whole families and all their stuff and their tents and everything, gone. God says, you incited me against Job to swallow him up. And you think about it, good grief. Was there anything, anything left to Job after all his wealth had been carried off by the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans or, or destroyed in the, the fire of God and the wind that came to uh, destroy the house that the children were in? Swallowed up is a basic how you could describe this. And he says, you did it in vain or without cause. In the same, same kind of vein as what Satan says, does Job fear God without cause? Verse uh, 9 of chapter 1. Without cause is the idea here, and in vain. Same, same ideas, same uh, thoughts. Without uh, a significant basis or a purpose or um, an end result that we're trying to get at. You, there was nothing. Satan, you, you just want to destroy Job. You want to destroy me, but you're destroying yourself, your own credibility, and you are just uh, storing up more and more condemnation for yourself. Verse 4 and 5 says, oh, Satan's got a response. 
It's not like Satan is, well, oh, I guess I am wrong. I guess I should repent in dust and ashes. No, he accuses God and says, no, skin for skin, which is kind of a, a nebulous thing. Various commentators say it's various things. I won't get into all the, all the things. I think it's made clear by his next phrase. Yes, all that a man has, he'll give for his life. In other words, as long as it's other people suffering for my, in the place of me, that's great. Their skin for my skin. Do you remember Hezekiah, King Hezekiah, had all the Babylonians, Chaldeans, in a later time period, come and he showed them all the stuff in his house and the temple and everything, and God was going to bring judgment. These people are going to come and carry away all that stuff, but not in your lifetime, in your son's time. And he said, oh, that's good. Not, I will die in peace, an old man, and my kids will have to deal with my messes, which is basically what we have in America. Anyway, we, we have a lot of issues there. But the idea here is that Job, Satan is accusing Job of being selfish. I'll let other people you know, carry the water or, or suffer the fate as long as I'm, I can escape. And so he, he accuses skin for, their skin for my skin. All a man has, he'll give for his life. However, he has a solution. Let's, let's you know, get this de- dealt with here. However, send forth your hand now and touch. Now, this isn't a, a good you know, blessing kind of touching kind of thing. This is a touch him in a, in a, a disastrous kind of a sense. Like bring a calamity upon him. Send forth your hand now, Satan says to God, and touch his bone and his flesh. His bone and his flesh. The idea in the Old Testament time period, ancient time, was that the bones were the source of health, but also of disease and, and sickness. There are a lot of references to, to bones. Uh, even this um, in Lamentations talks about God has sent a, f- a fire into my bones, a fever, essentially, just disease and, and sickliness in that regard. And that... Um, Job says, my bone clings to my skin and my flesh. I've escaped only by the skin of my teeth. Or in the contrast, somebody's healthy and doing fine. Uh, Job uh, 20 and verse 11 says, his bones are full of his youthful vigor, but it lies down with him in the dust. So his youthful vigor, just vitality and all this wonderful thing, even though that person is going to die just like everybody else. And, but the bones are, are those who are strong and, and healthy and, and happy. Other references we could look at. But he says, look, touch his bone and his flesh. So, you dealt with other people, the children, the servants, the animals. Okay, that's, they're, they're done and gone for. But what about Job himself? You touch his body, and guess what's going to happen? I guarantee it. Of course, he guaranteed it first time, Satan did. He will curse you to your face. Or here it says, he will curse you in your face. Uh, just an absolute blasphemy against God. Just railing against him, just saying, God, you, you know, all the, all the negative, false, lying things about God. You touch his body, and we'll see what kind of a man he is. We'll see how, hold, how holding fast his integrity is at that point. I know he's going to curse you. And of course, we mentioned this time before, that this word here translated curse is also the word for bless, which is in, in context determines what are we talking about. At the same time when, the, when Job's wife says, you know, bless God or curse God and die, the idea is not say something about, good about God and then he'll kill you so you can go to be with him. No, the idea is just... Give full vent to your anger against God because he's the one behind all these things. How dare you think otherwise? And she's encouraging him in that regard. And so Satan also, curse, he will curse you in your face. He will be verbally spouting out falsehood and lies against, against you. And we'll see how that goes at that point. So guess what God said? No, we're not gonna do that. No, he said, behold, he is in your hand. Only, 
spare his life. Kind of reminds you, I think I mentioned this a time or two before. Remember when Jesus says to his disciples at the Last Supper, Satan has demanded to sift you all like wheat, all the disciples. And you, you think, well, Peter's response was, you told him no, right? No. When Jesus says, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you, Peter specifically, and after you have turned, assuming he was going to be sifted like wheat and end up denying Jesus three times and even knew him, I have prayed for you that your faith remain firm, and after you have turned or repented, strengthen your brothers. Your faith is going to be your refuge. Now, it was after tears, right? Peter ran out of the high priest's home with tears, sorrowing over his departure, his, his defection against Jesus. But he turned and became Peter, as we see in the Acts. And first and second Peter, he wrote, of course. Anyhow, God puts this limit, only spare his life, don't kill him. Because what benefit, and various other Proverbs talk about um, uh, a live dog is better than a dead lion, right? An ignominious dog, like whatever, but a, a dead, or excuse me, a live dog is better than a dead lion, a noble of, of creatures, but he's dead. Here, if Job is dead, he can't confirm or deny his integrity before God. Is he going to bless him? Well, not if he's dead. Is he going to curse him? Well, not if he's dead. So God puts that limit, only spare his life. Well, Satan has such a murderous, disastrous hateful. I mean, just despises humans for a lot of different reasons. But he went out. I mean, it's almost immediate. Whereas if you look back at at, uh, verse 12 of chapter 1, Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh, and then verse 13. Now, it happened that on the day, whatever day it was, could have been the next day, could have been the same day, could have been a week later, a month later, whatever. You get the idea it wasn't too long after. But in verse 7, Satan went out and struck just immediate hatred, animosity against God and against Job and just the whole thing. We're going to deal with this right now. No interruptions, no intermediary, no intermission, no taking a little snack. I need, you know, I need to just get up some strength and get all my demons around. We're going to watch this thing. He just goes out and he lashes out, Satan does, against Job. And notice what it says. He left Yahweh and went to strike Job with terrible boils from the sole of his head, sole of his foot rather, to the top of his head. He goes out and gives these just a terrible, terrible skin disease, which got into his whole system. We, you know, this is a skin disease. Again, going back on that phrase, skin for skin, he touched his skin, and we'll see how that goes for him. You know, the skin is one of the largest organs in the body. You think that, what? It is. It's, it's fantastic how, how large it is, how important it is, how much of a, if you don't mind, a hedge skin is for our bodies. And now he touched that hedge. He removed the hedge even because all these ulcerous sores all over him. And now we'll see, what's he like? What's he like? And from the the sole of his foot to the top of his head, every part of his body, where is he going to, how is he going to position himself in bed or on on the ground or, or sitting where it doesn't hurt? I mean, just the whole, he can't even stand on his head, like upside down, because there's stuff up there. And he is just totally, terribly uh, struck by Satan's uh, ulcers here. Not ulcers like in the, uh, the stomach or digestive system, but an inflammation, just horrible things all over the flesh. And now Job, remember, he doesn't know all this conversation going on in the, in the, in the presence of Yahweh, where there is heaven or somewhere else. And so he didn't know that God put a limit in the first time against his person or on a person, don't touch him. 
He doesn't know now that this disease, which just ravages his body, is not a terminal illness. He doesn't know if he's going to die, which is kind of gives a little bit of compassion maybe to his wife's word. Just curse God and die. You, honey, you're just suffering so much. God would, would strike you down if you just tested him in this regard. And of course, his response will get you in just a moment. Just a misery that he endured. Uh, and we don't know how long this, this situation went um, here in chapter 2, but then the rest of the, chap- rest of the book and, and God, it doesn't dis- to say specifically that he healed his flesh. It does say he restored his fortunes in chapter 42, but somehow, and he lived a lot of time longer, obviously, uh, in chapter 42. If you can read ahead, it's okay. Uh, get Find out the end of the story. But these boils are just all over his body. These are the same kind of boils or skin disease that God struck upon Egypt in the, one of the ten plagues when these boils were breaking out on both man and beast. This is Exodus 9. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were, so, were on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And even so, Pharaoh would not let his people go. Striking his people with boils is something that God promised his people. You think, wait a minute, God would strike his people with boils? Yes, because if you, here's the whole thing. The Mosaic Covenant can be summarized in two phrases. There's a blessing if you obey and a curse if you disobey. I will bless your socks off if you obey, but let me tell you something. You disobey me, boils, indebtedness, nations coming after you, and just on and on it goes. But when God wants to bless, he blesses. But God says, Deuteronomy 28, 27, Yahweh will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with tumors and will, with the scab and with the itch from which you cannot be healed. So this is part of God's equipment or his strategy for, for disciplining his kids, his children, and other places we can see it. The thing that Hezekiah had, the boil that he had, same idea that Isaiah said, you know, make a little poultice of whatever and put it on the boil and he was healed and he lived even though it probably would have been better if he died right then just because of how he finished his life. And then there are, in Revelation, there are uh, sores, malignant sores in Revelation 16, and I mentioned a few different times there. It's also, remember the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16? Lazarus was struck with these boils all over it, and the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Ouch, yeah, disgusting. Uh, So this is what's going on with Job. He has these things. He goes on a catalog throughout the course of the book. Let me just give you some other related health maladies that he had. He says he had rotting skin. He had, um, the, at night, um, it, his affliction pierces my bones, gnawing pains, give me no rest. He has darkened, hardened, scabby kind of skin. He has uh, bones burning with fever. He has not just sores on his flesh, but it's just oozing and it's just nasty, which we see what he did with the potsherd here. He is groaning. He says, oh, food, my wife is bringing me, I can't, no, I, I can't eat anything. Just, uh. There is dread. There is just whatever comes into him in his mouth goes right out of him. He just can't be nourished by anything. His face is flushed with weeping. The shadow of death is on my eyelids. He talks about, I can't eat anything, but anorexia, I'm just losing weight, not in a good sense. He is depressed, so it's not just physical, it's emotional, mental. He is just weeping, he is sleepless, he has nightmares, he has eh, putrid breath, he describes. His, his vision just can't see him, he's, he's, he's dying, essentially, even though God says, don't kill him. His teeth are rotting in his mouth, and he just looks horrible. One of his friends come, they, they don't recognize him. Could be a couple different things going on there. We'll look at that in a moment. But his health is totally destroyed. 
by Satan's hand uh, going on here. And so verse 8 says, he took a potsherd, potsherd to scrape himself while he was sitting among the ashes. Wait a minute, what's he doing among the ashes? Where, where are these ashes? So, we don't know exactly, but the, the idea is that he is sitting in a place of mourning, a place of lamentation, a place of, of nobody else is going mean, to, that's a place where you take the garbage out. You don't stay there. You don't sit down and make a picnic in the, in the trash heap. But here he is. Of course, he doesn't really want food, but he's there and he says, oh, there's, there's a little bit of pot shirt, a little bro- piece of broken pottery. He picks it up and he says, maybe I can get some relief by, by just scraping off some of this crust and, and, the ooze, and maybe even itching a little bit. Because remember, he talked about being just itchy. That was actually part of God's judgment. You will be uh, struck with ab and with the itch, Deuteronomy 28, 27. So he's just trying to find some relief. Now he's sitting in the ashes, which is not a sanitary place to be, but it's a place of mourning, of weeping. When we talk about repenting in dust and ashes, well, this is what we're talking about. When the king of Nineveh repented in dust and ashes at the word of Jonah, he's mourning, he is lamenting. He says, I'm, I'm undone. There, there's, there's nothing but death for me because of God's sentence upon me. And so he is there trying to find some relief that he can. And he uh, finds that, that somehow this scraping himself, which is the only time this word is used in, is here in the whole Old Testament. And so somehow uh, either scraping or, or scratching to relieve the itchiness. And he is there in an ongoing way while he's sitting. He's there waiting for the next thing to happen. I mean, good, what, else, what else could happen here? Well, his wife could come. And you think, well, that's a blessing. And it may have been, I guess at this point, our time is gone. We'll have to save this for next time. These last uh, few verses here, nine and 10, to realize what is this test? What is this? What's the result of this? Satan said, he's going to curse you right in your face. I know it. Satan, guarantee. We're going to see what this happened. He hasn't spoken yet, has he? He's got this severe affliction upon his body. He hasn't spoken yet. And he doesn't speak until after his wife speaks. So much to be said. Let me just indicate one thing. The suffering that Job went through is a picture, a slight picture, but a picture of what our Lord Jesus went through. In fact, one person said it this way. I'll I'll read this uh, quotation and then be done. He says, Job in his extremity is actually but a shadow of a reality more extreme still, of a man who was not just blameless but sinless, not just the greatest man in the region, but the greatest human being in history, greater even than merely human, who emptied himself of all his glory, became incarnate, and went all the way down to the grating, naked, shameful death on the cross, whose journey took him from the eternal fellowship with the Father to utter aloneness on the cross. The story of Job is a shadow of the greater story of Jesus Christ. This man, Jesus, we celebrate his incarnation, and we ought to. But wait a minute, he was born to die. And all the sufferings he endured through his whole existence on earth, the days of his flesh, was for the purpose of accomplishing God's will, God's counsel, God's intention to save a bunch of sinful human beings, enemies, you know, warring against God, rebelling, traitors, treasonous, treacherous traitors against God. And Jesus is suffering all these things, not for his own sake, because he deserved it, but because he's dying in the place of us, ruined and, and lost sinners. The story of Job is but a shadow of the greater story of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we celebrate Christmas time, let's think about not just the beautiful little baby and all that, but the suffering that he endured for us. So our sins can be taken away. We can be free from that condemnation that is due all those who do not trust the Lord Jesus. Our Father in heaven, we're so grateful for the message of your truth.
here in, in Job and remembering our Lord Jesus as he suffered so many things, not in vain, not for the purpose of nothing, but to accomplish salvation, to accomplish your goodwill of saving some. And we're so grateful that you are the agent of salvation. Even in Job's case, it wasn't for his destruction. That's what Satan wanted. You wanted your glory to be on display and for Job's ultimate good to be accomplished. And what is that good? To know you. That Job knew you better as a result of his sufferings, as a result of your restoring his fortunes. He had a testimony that was far greater than he had before because of your grace and kindness upon his life. It wasn't easy. Definitely was not easy for him. And we'll see as he, he responds in so many different ways through the course of this book. It was very difficult for him. But even in the midst of it, we can trust you because you are good. You seek your glory. You're jealous for your glory. You'll not let Satan win. He's a vanquished foe. He doesn't know it yet. He, he refuses to accept it. Even in, in hell, I would imagine, he still fights against it. And yet, you are God. Please, may we honor you, glorify you, not curse you when things, good things, bad things happen to us. We don't know if they're good or bad. Some speaking, we could put a judgment on it. But in your perspective, we don't know what you're accomplishing ultimately other than the basic principles. You are seeking your glory and accomplishing our good. Please help us to rest in these things. Thank you again for this time together in your word. Please help us to be obedient to it and submissive to your goodness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.